It's a blessing to be together with you this evening and this weekend. Very thankful, very appreciative for the opportunity to have this time together. And I appreciate the leadership and, and all of you for the invitation to come and be here and the warmth of your welcome. It's been a few years since we've been here and I always enjoy getting the circle back through. As you can see on the screen this evening, we're going to talk about the fact that he went away sorrowful. And if you're thinking much about stories that we encounter in the gospel of Christ there in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you, it might have occurred to you this is a study that centers around the rich young ruler and the things that we encounter with him. And if you're acquainted with that story, you might recall that a lot of times when we talk about him, we understandably talk about him in a negative way. And there are certainly negative things to be said about him. But there are some positives as well. In fact, as I studied the story from that perspective of looking for commendable attitudes or behavior on his part, I was kind of surprised to learn he's kind of an impressive guy. But he got the key things wrong and the key thing wrong, in particular regarding Jesus. And it cost him dearly. And that's what we want to talk about tonight. The narrative of the story that we will be looking at is in Matthew, Matthew chapter 19, verse 16 through 22. Uh, this is recorded in the other Gospels, so you may read about it in some of the parallel accounts, but this will be the one that we'll look to this evening. It says, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God that... Uh, no one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I've kept from my youth up, what <clears throat> do I lack yet? And Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, Go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. And when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Dramatic encounter. Potential uh, to have a very life-changing encounter. And it's kind of frustrating from uh, that perspective because you see this guy coming right up to the brink of getting it and understanding changes that needed to happen in his life. <clears throat> and right at that brink, he stopped and he pulled back. And as far as we know, that's the last you know, we hear of him. As far as we know, he never came back and rethought it. Very sad. He went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. What can we say about this fellow? Well, first thing I'd like to observe about him is he had it all. In terms of what the world values, he had everything that heart could wish. He had wealth. He was rich. He had youth. He was young. And he had power. He was a ruler. Now, when you think about the different things that people crave in a worldly sense and the different things that people spend their lives pursuing in a worldly sense, I think, I guess, just about all of them kind of come under these three categories. People want wealth so they can buy stuff that they want or buy services or things or events that they want. 
People want youth so they can have the vitality to enjoy those things, and people want power to have the freedom to do those things and wield that power over others in pursuit of those things. Some people want wealth so they can get more power. Some people want more power so they can get more wealth, and they're all kind of tied together, you see. And so in a worldly sense, this guy had everything you would want. But he knew he needed something. And I find that fascinating. He had it all. He had wealth. But what does the Bible say about wealth? Proverbs 23 and 5, Wilt thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away as an eagle toward heaven. You know, there have been different times I would <clears throat> load my wallet with my travel fund, you know, money that I save and set aside for travel expenses and then take off. A day or two later, I, you know, I'll tell my wife, boy, those, those $20 bills are just flying out of my wallet. I don't know what's happening. It just costs a lot of money to go and travel and do things, doesn't it? I remember the financial advice my dad gave me years ago. It was golden. I'm afraid it wasn't quite timeless. He, his advice was, son, try never to break a 20 if you can help it. Imagine that. Because <laughs> he said, once you break them, they're gone. They just fly away. Well, we might want to change that to a $50 or $100 bill to kind of catch up with inflation. But you get the point. Easy come, easy go, they say. Money goes out fast. Wealth can be gone quickly. If you've been following the news at all, you, you've heard there's some people up in Canada that lost theirs overnight. <laughs> Government come and took it. That can happen. The best you have and the most that you have is at the end of the day, fleeting. In the book of 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 7, he said, we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Even if you manage to hold on to all your wealth, even if you manage to stop it from flying away and, and grasp it with your tightest grip up to your dying hour, you can't take it with you. Remember as a kid, they had this little trinket. I don't know, some catalog you could order out of us at school or something. I don't remember what the deal was. But I ordered this little trinket that was like a little casket, and you put a coin on a trigger spot there, and, and the thing opened, and the skeleton head reared up and looked at that coin, and he reached a bony arm out and pulled that thing back in. And I thought, I will buy this, <laughs> and people will pay to watch this, and this machine will pay for itself. And it did. I made a little money, like 25 cents. It was great. <laughs> My first successful business venture. You know, and, and, and on the side it said, you can't take it with you, but you can try. <laughs> And that's what the bony little guy inside the tin box that I eventually took apart out of curiosity and quit making money with, that's what he was all about. I'm going to try to take it with me, but you can't. Think about the pharaohs of Egypt. You ever read any about those tombs in Egypt and the pyramids or watched any documentaries? You know, those guys packed those things with wealth in an effort to take it with them. And they were just as dead as everybody else. And that wealth was right there next to their embalmed bodies until thieves managed to work their way through the long labyrinth of hallways that reached deep down into the belly of the pyramid and bit by bit haul it all off. You can't take it with you. So he had wealth. 
I mean, the rich young ruler had something everybody wants. Let's not kid ourselves. We all want wealth, youth, and power. Even though we know it's fleeting, etc., we still, that's kind of what we want. But we can sit here and look at him and see that's something that doesn't last. And if you could take it with, if you could take it with you, look at Proverbs 11 and 4. Riches profit not in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivereth from death. If you could take it with you, what are you going to do with it on judgment day? Here, God, I'd like to buy my acquittal. I mean, it's not going to happen. He doesn't care about it. It's not going to help him any. It's all his in the first place. It's all part of his creation. Now, I was studying one of the contexts that a reference comes from for this lesson tonight. I was studying a context earlier today and looking at some other things in there. And one of the things I stumbled onto that I opted not to put on the screen tonight, but I'll share it with you. It's from the book of Psalms. He said, you can take wealth, but you can't, you can't redeem your neighbor on judgment day. You can't buy your buddy out of judgment with it. If someone you care about is condemned on judgment day, you can't use wealth to help them. And this indicates it's not going to help you. I mean, you can enjoy it while you live to some degree, arguably a limited degree. It'll only do so much. But then you can't take it with you. And if you could, it wouldn't help you. So he had it all, but he kind of had nothing. What about his youth? Youth is fleeting. Ecclesiastes 11 and verse 10. Therefore remove sorrow from thy heart and put away evil from thy flesh. For childhood and youth are vanity. Enjoy your youth. Be glad you've got it. But it's vain. And it's not going to last. You think about the vibrancy of your youth and how much you're enjoying this young stage of your life, those of you who are young. A lot of you, I know your parents, and I'm going to tell you something you're not going to understand. I think of them as young. And I hear what you're thinking. You're thinking, yeah, but that's because you're old. And I am. I make it look good. Let's not kid ourselves about that either. And I'm always encountering people that when I tell them my age, it's 58, that they're like, oh, you're young. You know, it's a relative thing, isn't it? But my point is, as I think of your parents as young and you're saying, no, no, they're old. The reason I think of them as young is because yesterday, my yesterday, they were. And their youth was gone that quick. And yours will be too. You can feel gratified with it, and that's great. But I'm just going to tell you what this passage is teaching. It's going to all come to a screeching halt in a big heap of ruin and back pain, okay? It's coming. And someday you're going to say, wow. And I remember all the old guys 40 years ago that said, you know, I know I'm 70-whatever years old, but between my ears, I still feel kind of like I'm 18. And that's sort of how it goes until you try to get out of your chair, get out of bed, and you're thinking, no, <laughs> between my ears has got it wrong. It's vain. It, fleet, it, it, 
It's fleeting. It slips away rapidly. And someday you'll look at your buddies and think of, you know, think of them as young, and you'll be watching their kids, and this will all replay until time ends. That ruler, I'm going to tell you, he's not young anymore. And whatever age he was when he came to Jesus, by the time Paul was busily spreading the gospel deep into southern Europe, that guy wasn't young anymore. He hasn't been young for a long, long time. And unless he made some really big changes, he's not wealthy either. Well, but what about the power? He was a ruler. I'm not sure what he was a ruler over if it was like a provincial or some kind of a high-up government official. He's just some kind of ruler. Well, who doesn't want to be in charge? Psalm 62 and verse 9 says something about power. He said, Surely a men of low degree are a vapor. Men of high degree are a lie. If they are weighed on the scales, they are altogether lighter than vapor. Here he's contrasting two extremes of human status. One is of low degree. That's the guy who's the bottom rung of the ladder, the low end of the totem pole. He has to say sir and ma'am to everybody because he's the last one that's in charge. And then he goes to the other extreme and he talks about the person of high degree. They've got the big office with the soft chair and the fancy desk. And God looks at both extremes and he said, I'll weigh them together and they're nothing. In the sight of God, that earthly power contrived among men is nothing. As you watch world events unfold, looking at today's headlines, backing up as far as you can remember, we're always thinking or talking about somebody that has a lot of power at their disposal. And we're wondering if they're going to use it for good or if they're going to destroy somebody. We're always thinking about someone like that and talking about someone like that. And I'm going to tell you the most powerful among them all is less than a flea before God. God looks at power among humans and says, it's lighter than vapor. So he had it all, but he had nothing. But let's give him credit. He wanted better. There are good things we can observe about him, and there are negatives we can observe about him. And one of the good things we can observe about him is he come to Jesus for answers. What lack I yet? What can I do? He's got this attitude that even though he had all that heart could wish, <clears throat> wealth, youth, and power, he had all that interests people. He looked inside. He looked in his mirror. He inventoried his life, and he said, I need answers. And he didn't just ask the right question. He asked the right person because he come right where you've got to go if you want the best answer. He came to the Son of God. So let's appreciate that about the fella. He wanted better. And why? Well, look at what Ecclesiastes says about all this that he has. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10 and 11. He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, 
nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? You can only live up so much space. You can only eat so much food. You can only consume so much enjoyment and entertainment. After a while, a sad realization begins to settle in. It's kind of empty. And testimony upon human testimony through the years have testified to this fact. Our world has seen fabulously wealthy people come and go in sorrow and ruined lives because of this principle that's on your screen right now. The person who makes their joy all about how much silver they have will not be, there's never enough, they won't be satisfied. I'll tell you what a, a man told me one time, and this was a man that was of high financial attainment. He had more than he could ever live up and enjoy. And he said, David, it's not the dollars that I have. It's that other one out there that I hadn't got yet, and I want it. So he goes and he chases that one, and he adds one more to his pile, you see. Well, now he's got the one that he didn't have, right? There's always another one. And there's always another one. And for a while, it kind of seems exciting, but eventually, somewhere along the way, you wake up to a cruel reality that says, this isn't working. This isn't fulfilling. There's got to be more. And that's where that rich young ruler was at. However much silver he had, it didn't satisfy him. He was not satisfied with that or his increase. Why? Because it's vanity. It's just as vain as his youth. It's just as fleeting. It's just as hollow. It's just as vain as God esteemed his power to be. Empty and ungratifying. Something else I'd like to notice about this fellow that's positive is that he's a decent man. Think about the things that Jesus talked to him about when he said, what, what, what do I do? Well, Jesus listed off all these commandments. Don't commit murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And then kind of a summary statement that encompasses all those principles. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. All these things have I kept from my youth. Now, I know he wasn't perfect, and I know he went away sorrowful, and I know there's problems, but I'm going to tell you something. I've had next-door neighbors that I would love to have traded off for this guy. I mean, I remember a few years ago, there was a guy that lived two, three doors down, two. He was a problem. Had some animals he didn't take good care of, and I had to get him out of bed several times to, you know, deal with some of those problems. And he's just unpleasant to get along with. He's always wanting to holler at the ladies in the neighborhood till a guy showed up, and then all of a sudden he became a gentleman, you know. He's just one of those guys, a real problem. One day, I get a knock on the door, and I go to the door, and there's the Texas Rangers. That's exciting. <laughs> they were looking for him. Well, I hope you find him. He ain't worth knocking in the head. If you do, I'll just tell you that. 
I mean, there's a lot of rotten people out there. I'm not sure he could have got very far down this list, okay, before he's kind of sifted out, all right? I'm wondering if the first one got him, be honest with you. This is a good fella. Is the way we esteem, you know, decent human beings. I mean, he cared about his fellow man. He was good to his parents. He wouldn't lie about you. He wouldn't steal from you. I mean, this is a good guy. Let's, let's move him in next door to us. But in spite of how good you feel like that is, at this stage in his life, it's just a checklist without a Savior. And I want you to think about this if you're not a Christian tonight. You can perhaps sit there and say, well, but I'm not such a bad person. I mean, and, you know, and go down the list, just like Jesus did for this fellow. And you might be able to check a lot of boxes on that list. But you know what? If you don't have Jesus, you got problems. It's not enough to just be a decent person. You've got to have a Savior to rescue you from the moments when you fail that standard of decency. And you have, and I have, and so has everybody else. And so this says something powerful about him that is commendable, and we can kind of like the guy, but it also says something we need to hear. A Christless, decent person is a lost person. Do not forget that. And he knew it. He knew he was inadequate. What lack I yet? Such powerful words to be able to go down that list and say, I, I'm keeping every one of these commandments. To have a heart that can see when your life isn't quite right. And to have the presence of mind to go to the right person, the Son of God, and ask about it. To be that guy and still know I'm lacking something. I'm going to tell you, there was a Jesus-shaped hole in his heart. Psalms 53, verse 2 and 3 tells us why he felt this way. God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. Every one of them has turned aside. They have uh, together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. The very best at some point have faltered, and therefore even the best need a Savior, need rescue, need redemption, need God's mercy. It only comes through Christ. And so he was right to feel that hole, to feel like I'm missing something. He also understood that he had a duty before God, that there were things that he was supposed to do. What good thing can I do? You can think about this. That was a golden opportunity for Jesus to say what a lot of people say today if what a lot of people say today was true. Oh, there's nothing you need to do. 
You don't have to do anything. If that was true, this was a golden opportunity for Jesus to correct him in that. But he didn't. Now, Jesus used some pretty tricky, cool ways to extract out of that fellow what he did need. And I hope as we continue to discuss this man's interlude with Christ that I can make that evident to you. But Jesus didn't rebuke him for having an idea, I've got to do something. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14 would be a scriptural basis for why that guy had the idea he had to do something. Because this, as part of the Old Testament scripture that he would have heard read every synagogue Sabbath, it says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. you got to keep the commands of God because God's going to judge you for how you live. Hey, that's pretty simple. And I can imagine this guy thinking about that passage or perhaps some passages back in the, in the law itself there in, in Exodus or Leviticus or Numbers or Deuteronomy. Passages that talked about duty, passages that talked about obedience. I can imagine him thinking about those verses and thinking, Lord, what am I supposed to do? He knew there were things he needed to do. He just didn't know what. You know, that's true about us today. God didn't lose interest in our obedient hearts just because Jesus died. He wants us to be obedient too. Hebrews 5 and 9 says so. Being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. Someone says, well, I thought salvation come through Christ. It does. But he offered a salvation that's connected to our obedience. He offered a salvation that says we've got to obey him. We've got to follow him. There are things we're supposed to do. So this rich young ruler's precise idea about it may not have been exact, but he did have a general idea that God expects things of me. And I can respect that. There are a lot of people today that think they're Christians that don't understand that. Don't you be one of them. An unfortunate thing about this man is that he kept Christ at arm's length. When you read the first part of the encounter... Do you ever think Jesus sounds belligerent? I know Jesus wasn't being belligerent. Don't misunderstand me. But do you ever think it's odd the way Jesus talked to him up front? I'm talking about where the guy said, good master. You remember what Jesus said? Why are you calling me good? There's none good but one, and that's God. Jesus was playing off the principle we read earlier out of Psalms. Among mere humans, there's nobody that's righteous. This guy comes to Jesus and labels him as righteous. <clears throat> and Jesus is basically saying, if I'm just another man like you, I'm no better than you are. Christ is inferring that because you see me as good, then you must see that I'm the Son of God. 
Because as the Son of God, He was good. And when Jesus said, there's none good but God, Jesus wasn't saying, I'm not good. He's saying, the reason I am good is because I'm the divine Son of God. He's trying to get this guy to open his eyes. See what you see in me and draw the logical conclusion that I'm more than what you think I am. Now look, you could talk about the apostles that went with him and say there's a lot of stuff they struggled to figure out. We understand that. But they figured that out. What did Peter say when Jesus said, who do you say I am? Peter said, well, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now there may be some things about that that Peter didn't connect, but he understood in some way Jesus was God's Son. He was connecting Him with heaven and with deity. Okay? So Peter reached that conclusion. Others had reached that conclusion. And you can find smattering instances of that scattered throughout Christ's personal ministry. But this guy held Christ at arm's length. And by that I mean he stopped short of accepting the logical conclusion of his observation about Jesus, that Jesus was good he was different. He wasn't like those other guys. He can perform miracles. He's a great teacher. This must be the Christ. This must be the Son of God. Because Old Testament theology taught that the Christ would be the Son of God, okay? So there were dots for him to have connected that he failed to connect. So when Christ kind of parried with him like that or sparred with him, he wasn't trying to be belligerent. He's trying to get the guy to see that he was holding Jesus at arm's length and not letting him conclude what Christ demands that people conclude. In John 8 and 24, I said therefore unto you that you shall die in your sins, for if you believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins. For this guy to get headed down the path towards getting it right and getting things fixed, he needed to embrace what Jesus was teaching him when he said, why are you calling me good? There's none good but God. Oh, okay, well, you're good, so therefore you're God. You're divine. You're the Son of God. And he stopped short of that conclusion, and he wouldn't let himself embrace the reality that was breaking on his view, that Jesus was different. And Jesus said in John 8, if you won't bring yourself to that conclusion, you'll be lost. And that's why this man's wealth and youth and power weren't really all that much punkin'. Because all of that didn't change the fact he was still lost. There's one more thing I want you to notice about this fella, and that is that he wouldn't yield. What do you mean? Well, Jesus said, sell all your stuff and give it to the poor, and he wouldn't do it. Well, what? We all got to sell all our stuff? And give all that away? And if we don't do that, we can't be saved? Well, let's try that for a minute. Let's suppose I sell all that stuff and I give it to Carrie. I've got all my stuff and I sell every bit of it and say, sorry, Tanya, and I give it to Carrie. Well, now what he got to do? Well, he's got to sell it all and he's going to give it to someone else. He's going to give it to Truett behind. Now, he's an accountant. He might keep some of it. 
No, he's got, well, I've got to sell it all and give it away. And all of our possessions would just be this spiritual hot potato that we're all passing around saying, well, I hope I'm not. Y'all ever play that game, hot potato? If you're caught holding it, when the game ends, you lose. And it'd be like a spiritual hot potato. If you're caught holding any possessions at the end of the way, then you lose and you're lost. And oh, well, too bad. Should have sold it and give it away. You know, I don't know anybody that believes that. Well, then why did Jesus say that to the guy? Well, what's he telling him? All right. Go back to the commandments that Jesus listed. Don't commit murder. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't bear false witness. You know, and he gets down to the end. You know, honor your parents. He gets down to the end. He just summarizes all those. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what that all means. When you go back and look at the Ten Commandments, which that's the list Christ's working off of there initially, when you look at the Ten Commandments, you can divide the Ten Commandments in two segments. One section of them deals with your relationship with your fellow man, and that's the ones that Jesus listed. The others deal with your relationship with God. Don't make any graven images. Don't have any other gods before me. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. That's the part that, dealt, that regulated their relationship with God. But the part that regulates your relationship with your fellow man, Jesus named every one of them except thou shalt not covet your neighbor's possessions. He left that off the list, and I'm going to tell you why. Because he's trying to help the guy see what he's missing. Because he left off, thou shalt not covet, the guy could honestly say, I have checked every box on this list. But like everybody else, he had some sin he didn't have a handle on. And that sin was his sin of covetousness. And that came out at the end. To drive the point home, Jesus said, then get rid of your stuff. And he's not saying that because we all got to get rid of all our stuff. He's saying that because that guy had a particular problem with it, and Jesus is trying to help him see that problem. And so he lists off just the right commandments and leaves off just the one that he needed to to draw out the guy's admission about how he lived, and then that nagging feeling of what lack I yet. The guy knew he had a problem. And by the time Jesus got done with him, he knew what his problem was. He wasn't willing to fully embrace who Jesus was, and he had a problem with greed. His possessions were getting in the way. He wouldn't yield. He wouldn't give in and break over and change. I want to tell you something. Sometimes we try to do that with the Lord. We, we think of pieces of our life like bargaining chips that's piled up over here in front of us, and we want to slide him a couple of big, shiny, pretty ones and make it feel like we're giving ground, but hold back a part of our heart and kind of let that be mine. It doesn't work that way. We've got to fully embrace who he is and all that goes with it, and that means he's the Son of God, and we've got to obey him. And we've got to give over every corner of our heart 
Even that one corner we're really, really struggling with, we've got to fully yield. In Matthew 16 and 26, on a different occasion, Jesus hypothetically asked, what does a man profit if he gained the whole world and loses his own soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? The guy walked away from Christ empty-handed. You might say, well, no, he still had all his wealth. Yeah, but what did he have in exchange for it? Nothing. He lost his soul. What does a man profit if he gains all this wealth, but he loses his soul? I'm telling you, he was empty-handed. The person outside of Christ, the worldly person, loses their most cherished possession when they die. And the child of God gains their most cherished possession at death. They lost the earthly treasures the day they died, the things they had long cherished in their misspent life. And now that they're dead and they've lost their soul, they realize what was really their most cherished possession all along. And now they've lost that. They lose everything. It's the epitome of bankruptcy, y'all. But the child of God, no matter where they're at on that power scale we read about earlier in Psalms, no matter where they're at on the, on the financial balance sheet, they gain their most cherished possession, and that's their soul salvation. You break the tape, the race is run, and it's won. And because this guy wouldn't yield, he gave that victory up. Going away from Christ is indeed sorrowful because you lose heaven's wealth, you lose eternal life, and you lose power over death. And that's wealth and health and power that matters and that lasts. Let's talk about those things. Heaven's wealth, Matthew 6, 19 and 20 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust uh, uh, destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus draws our attention to the unfortunate reality that we can lose our wealth in a heartbeat. It is fleeting like we talked about earlier. But treasures in heaven are different. They can't confiscate that. They can't steal that. It doesn't, you don't have to buy insurance on it, okay? It's not going to decay or get destroyed. It's just there. And it's yours forever. Christ used that analogy for a reason. He wants to invest in, he wants us to invest in something that's lasting. Youth is great, but it won't last. But eternal life is eternal youth. And that lasts forever. How many different legends are tied to how many different civilizations that involve some great character using all of his wealth and his power and his youth to go hunt for the fountain of youth? And gold, while we're at it, let's hunt for some gold. <laughs> there were guys that traveled through this country, meandering here and there, searching for the, some mythical, legendary golden city, 
some fountain of youth, some all the things that, that and it's in heaven, y'all. It's eternal life. The fountain of youth springs forth from the throne of God. And it's available to all who would follow the Lord. First Timothy 6 and 12, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. Paul encouraging Timothy here, lay hold on eternal life. Continue to be faithful to the Lord. Receive that prize and power over death. Hey, there's no power on earth like power over death. Psalms 49 and 15 says, God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. The grave holds a grip that we can't break. No matter how many people you can stack up that call you boss, no matter how much power you can attain in this life and have at your beck and call, none of that will give you power over the grave. But God has power over the grave, and he'll open it for you and bring your lifeless body out glorified and immortal, fully victorious over death. That's a promise for the faithful follower of God, and that's a power that lasts for eternity. That's a power that far surpasses any feeble thing this earthly life has to offer. This man went away sorrowful because he went away from Jesus. Do not duplicate his mistake tonight. If you are not a Christian, don't walk away from here tonight without being a Christian, without becoming one. Don't walk away from Christ. Because if you do, you surrender the wealth and the eternal life and the power of the grave that lasts forever, the things that matter the most. If you are a Christian, but you're faltering in your service to the Lord, you feel yourself drifting further from the Lord, think about our study tonight and that rich young ruler so long ago and what his story says to you. And don't walk away. Our elders here are ready to assist you. If you want to become a child of God and obey the gospel, they're ready to assist you. If you already are a child of God and you need the prayers of the church, they're ready to assist you. There are others that would help you as well. There are people that would study the Scriptures, whatever your need. It's here waiting for you from the hand of God through God's people here. Won't you receive it? Won't you come? Have a seat on the front while we stand and sing.